Hey everyone, Pacific here with another episode of Insidious Inspirations. And a reminder, if you like the show and you like what we do, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podchaser. Reviews are one of the best ways to get our shows into the ears of new listeners, and we appreciate it a lot. And just earlier today, we had a uh, delightful review come in from uh, Mama Hippie on Apple Podcast. She said, I love this podcast. I love Nicole. Keep them coming. And Nicole, thanks for my card. Uh, three hearts, Trish. Uh, thanks a ton, Trish or uh, Mama Hippie. Uh, we appreciate you writing in and leaving us a review. And if you want your review read, let us know what you think of the show. And without further ado, this week's episode. Irish folk tales tell of stolen children, whisked away in the dead of night by the fairies. These children were taken to act as servants, to sate the curiosity of fairies curious about human children, or as an act of revenge. In the stolen child's place, they would leave a fairy child that the parents would raise with no idea that the little one they conceived and gave birth to was long gone, lost in another world. These supernatural replacements are known as changelings, fairies hiding in plain sight in human homes. The 2008 Clint Eastwood film Changeling, starring Angelina Jolie, derives its title from this legend, but there are no fairies to be found in its story. It is a mystery crime drama that tells the tale of a woman reunited with her missing son. But, much to her horror, all is not as it seems, and the boy may not be who he says he is. One that rocked a woman's life and turned 1928 Los Angeles upside down, this is the story of the Wineville Chicken Murders, a missing boy named Walter Collins, and a grieving mother who couldn't tell who to trust. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. On an ordinary, sunny spring day in the Mount Washington, Los Angeles area, a telephone operator named Christine Collins gave her nine-year-old son, Walter, a dime to go see a movie at the theater near their home. He had walked around the town on his own before, the walk wasn't far, and he'd be back before Christine even had time to miss him. But the movie theater closed for the evening, the day turned into night, and Walter still wasn't home. Christine began to fear the absolute worst. Unfortunately, her instinct that something terrible had happened proved to be correct and Walter could not be found anywhere. She called the police, who combed the Los Angeles area and even dragged the Lincoln Park Lake searching for any sign of the boy, but there was nothing. No evidence, no body, only a mother's worst fears confirmed. The disappearance of Walter Collins occurred only months after an awful kidnapping rocked the city of Los Angeles. Three months before Walter Collins vanished, 12-year-old Marion Parker was kidnapped and held for ransom by William, the Fox, Hickman, a vicious killer who dismembered Marion and disposed of her body just before being caught by authorities. The Los Angeles Police Department had recently been under investigation for a series of corruption scandals, and the police chief, James Davis, was eager to bring Walter Collins home safe and sound and find a way to repair the department's reputation. Meanwhile, Christine Collins was desperate for answers. She was worried that her son's disappearance could be related to his father, who was doing time in Folsom State Prison for robbery. In prison, he was tasked with working at the cafeteria and reporting other inmates' infractions to the warden. This position naturally drew the ire of his fellow prisoners, and he had plenty of enemies who might want to target his family on the outside. While Christine wondered if her son was being punished for the actions of his father, 
the police were opening themselves up to all potential avenues of investigation. As word of Walter's disappearances spread, tips from concerned citizens began pouring in, claiming to have spotted Walter. A gas station attendant in Glendale contacted the LAPD to say that he had seen a dead boy wrapped in a newspaper in the back of a foreign couple's car. Another man followed the couple when they left the gas station, following them to a local police station before they sped out of town and lost him. Other tips reported seeing Walter with a traveling couple, but none of the reports led anywhere. Finally, in August, five months after Walter first disappeared, Illinois police picked up a boy who appeared to be lost. He told them his name was Arthur Kent and that his father had abandoned him. They placed the boy with a temporary family for a short time before he told them he had lied about his identity. His real name, the boy said, was Walter Collins, and he was from Los Angeles. He had misled them in order to protect his father. The Illinois police contacted the LAPD, who quickly alerted Christine Collins about what they had found. Overjoyed at the safe return of her son, Christine paid $70 in expenses to bring Walter back home to Los Angeles. As soon as she laid eyes on him, though, she knew that something was terribly wrong. She confided in LAPD Captain J.J. Jones about her concerns and said, I do not think that is my son. Jones brushed off her concerns, assuring her that Walter looked a bit different due to the five months of stress and abuse he would have endured at the hands of his kidnapper. He suggested that Christine ignore her suspicions, take the boy home, and try him out for a few weeks. She doubted the officer's intentions, knowing that the police department was eager to wrap up Walter's case with a neat little bow and get back to pretending they weren't the corrupt, incompetent institution that the public believed them to be. But she was exhausted from the search, worn down from five months of uncertainty and terror for her son, and she just wanted the whole ordeal to be over. So she swallowed her questions and took the boy home with her. Over the next three weeks, however, her concerns only grew. She tried to go about her daily life with the missing piece of her family back in place, but something didn't quite fit. This boy didn't move like her Walter, didn't speak like him, didn't look like him. How could she, as his mother, feel so distant from him? What was wrong? Christine reached out to her support system, seeking out the opinions of others who had known her son. Family friends, neighbors, teachers, several of them agreed. This boy was a perfectly fine young man, but he was not Walter Collins. Her suspicions were confirmed altogether when she got her hands on Walter's dental records, which did not match the boy the police had sent home with her. Armed with this evidence, she returned to the LAPD to speak to Captain Jones. In spite of the dental records and the friends backing up Christine's story, Captain Jones did not want to hear it. He berated Christine, saying, What are you trying to do? Make fools out of us all? Or are you trying to shirk your duty as a mother and have the state provide for your son? You are the most cruel-hearted woman I've ever known. You are a fool. Jones accused Christine Collins of trying to get the state of California to take care of her child for her. He also claimed that she was deliberately trying to embarrass the police department and declared her mentally unfit. Taking advantage of Code 12, which allowed police officers to commit citizens against their will if they appeared to be interfering with the investigative work, Jones had Collins locked up in a psychiatric ward at L.A. County General Hospital. She was held there against her will, all for the crime of questioning the department's hasty handling of her son's case, and for refusing to accept that the boy they had brought back from Illinois was her child. While Christine Collins was confined to an institution, there was a dark truth straining to come out. She was right. The boy was an imposter. 
Up next, we find out what happened when the illusion of Walter Collins' return began to unravel. The terror, the confusion, and all of the revelations that finally came out about the missing boy, the imposter, and a notorious murderer. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. While Christine Collins was falsely imprisoned for daring to disagree with Captain Jones, a handwriting expert concluded that the boy from Illinois was definitely not Walter Collins. Handwriting samples from both boys were compared and did not match. Captain Jones interrogated the boy who had been living with Christine Collins for weeks, and he wrote a confession admitting to the lie. I am not Walter Collins. My name is Billy Fields. I said I was Walter Collins because I wanted to get into the movies in Los Angeles. But the boy in custody was not Billy Field, either. Finally, he opened up all the way and admitted to the entire truth. His name was Arthur Hutchins, and he was a runaway from Iowa. Following the death of his mother, he had gone to live with his father and stepmother, who were cold to him on their best days and outright cruel on their worst. He said of staying with them, A person doesn't realize what a hell this world can be at the hands of a stepmother that doesn't love or want you. Unable to take living there any longer, and wanting to avoid attention from the local police following an arrest for stealing, he left his new home and hitchhiked across the country. He spent his time on the road working odd jobs wherever he could to scrounge up enough money to survive. This difficult lifestyle gave him the malnourished, exhausted look that the police initially attributed to neglect at the hands of his kidnapper. While stopped at a cafe in Illinois, a stranger remarked to Arthur that he looked quite a bit like a kidnapped boy from Los Angeles that he had seen a picture of in the newspaper. Desperate for an opportunity to get out to California and see Hollywood, as well as the chance at a comfortable home, he assumed the identity of Walter Collins and turned himself in to the police. Ten days after Arthur confessed to the lie, Christine Collins was released from the psychiatric ward. She immediately filed a false imprisonment suit against Jones and was awarded $10,800 for her trouble but Jones never paid. He was suspended by the LAPD, but only for a few months before he was permanently reinstated. Meanwhile, Arthur went back to live with his father and his stepmother and attended the Iowa State Training School for Boys as part of his rehabilitation. He admitted that he owed Christine and the state of California an apology, but for the most part, he left his brief stint as a missing boy behind him. Arthur Hutchins went back to life as usual, whatever that was for him. But with Arthur's secret out, the mystery of Walter Collins remained unsolved. With pressure on the LAPD mounting, the increasingly desperate Jones drew a parallel between the Collins' disappearance and another recent case that had horrified the people of Southern California. Around the same time that Walter went missing, Nelson and Lewis Winslow, 10 and 12 years old, disappeared on their way home on May 16, 1928. Their parents received letters in the mail supposedly from their sons saying that they were heading to Mexico and that they had left their home to become famous. A few months before, a headless boy's body was found in La Puente. Then, in September 1928, all of the disparate pieces came together in a stark picture. A Canadian woman named Winifred Clark reached out to authorities in the United States to tell them that her nephew had kidnapped her son and was holding him at his ranch in California. The boy, Sanford Wesley Clark, had left home two years prior to move in with Gordon Stewart Northcott. 
Sanford's sister Jessie visited the ranch to investigate and found that Northcott was behaving strangely, erupting in violent outbursts and mistreating her brother. On September 15, 1928, Sanford told police that Northcott had kidnapped him and abused him, but that wasn't the end of the horrors he endured on the ranch. Northcott had forced Sanford to watch the murders of boys he kidnapped, including Nelson and Lewis Winslow. He would abduct boys, torture them, and then kill them with an axe in the incubator room. He would dispose of the bodies by covering them in quicklime. Among the murders that Sanford described was that of Walter Collins. However, when the police investigated the ranch, nothing belonging to Walter was ever found. They recovered pieces of bone, human hair, blood, Boy Scout badges, and a child's whistle, but none of them were Walter's. To muddy the waters further, Northcott denied any involvement in Collins' disappearance. On September 20th, 1928, Gordon Stewart Northcott was arrested in British Columbia, and his mother, Sarah Louise Northcott, was arrested in Alberta for assisting him with his crimes. At first, Northcott confessed verbally to five murders, but only admitted to one in a written confession, that of a Mexican boy named Alvin Guthia. In December, Sarah Northcott confessed to the murder of Walter Collins, saying that she had delivered the killing blow and buried the boy's body in a hole near the chicken coop. She was sentenced to life in prison for the murder, but Walter's body was never found. On February 8, 1929, the all-male jury convicted Northcott for the first-degree murders of the Winslow brothers and an unnamed victim. The judge sentenced him to death. While Northcott sat on death row, Christine Collins refused to give up on finding concrete answers about her son. She received a telegram from death row in October 1930, where Northcott claimed he had lied before when he insisted that Walter was not one of his victims. He would tell her the truth, he said, if she came to visit him in person and listen to it. So Collins became the first woman in more than three decades to get permission to visit a serial killer on the night before his execution. When she tried to speak with him, however, he turned her away. I don't want to see you. I don't know anything about it. I'm innocent, he said. After Northcott's execution, Christine Collins received a small crumb of hope. One of the boys he had been accused of killing was found, alive and unharmed. If he hadn't been among the victims, then perhaps Walter hadn't been either. She never gave up on the fight, and continued searching for her lost boy for the remainder of her life. To this day, the exact fate of Walter Collins remains unknown. As bizarre and disconcerting as it is, the story of Walter Collins and the boy who assumed his identity is not the only case of a missing child being replaced by an imposter. There have been several other cases of changelings settling into the place left behind of a lost boy, whether by mistake or by deliberate deception. On August 23, 1912, Leslie and Percy Dunbar took their two sons, Alonzo and Bobby, on a fishing trip to Swayze Lane in Louisiana. The family played in the water to beat the heat in the morning, then returned to their cabin for lunch. Somehow, during this transition from playtime to mealtime, four-year-old Bobby Dunbar disappeared. Terrified, his parents called the police, who, after discovering footprints near the campsite and hearing reports of a strange man sighted in the area, suspected that Bobby had been kidnapped. A nationwide search for the missing boy began, lasting eight months as the police searched Swayze Lake's murky waters captured and dissected alligators looking for swallowed body parts, and followed every lead they could find. But even a cash reward offered by Percy Dunbar did little to turn up useful evidence. Then, in April 1913, the police received a tip about a handyman in Mississippi spotted with a boy matching Bobby's description. 
The handyman, William Cartel Walters, insisted that the boy he was traveling with was Bruce Anderson, the son of Walters' friend Julia, who had left Bruce with him while she left town to look for work. Several locals backed up Walters' story, and claimed to have seen Bruce and Walters together several days before Bobby went missing. But the police dismissed these witnesses. They took the boy into custody and put him on the next train to Louisiana and the Dunbar family. Reports of the supposed reunion are inconsistent, with some claiming that the boy recognized Leslie as his mother on sight, while others claimed that the Dunbars were dubious about the boy's identity. However, regardless of any initial impressions, Leslie and Percy took the boy home and, after searching for identifying moles and birthmarks, announced that he was, in fact, their missing son Bobby. There was just one problem. Julia Anderson arrived in town, matching Walter's earlier claims and asked for her son back. However, when she was unable to definitively identify the boy in a police lineup, the papers dragged her reputation through the mud, and she was forced to leave town alone. The boy that the police had found lived the rest of his life as Bobby Dunbar, for better or worse. Then, in 1999, one of Bobby's granddaughters decided to search for the truth and reopen the long-closed case. In 2004, authorities tested DNA provided by Bobby Dunbar Jr. and discovered that the boy taken from Walters all those years ago was, in fact, not Robert Dunbar. The identity of the man raised as Bobby remains unknown, and the real Bobby Dunbar was never found. On June 13, 1994, the day before he was expected to attend a sentencing hearing for shoplifting, Nicholas Barclay disappeared. He was last seen playing basketball with his friends in the park, but never came home. In October 1997, the police received a call from a worker at a youth shelter in Spain. The caller said that there was a boy living at the shelter who claimed to be Nicholas. The boy said he had escaped a human trafficking ring after years of abuse. Nicholas's sister flew to Spain to meet the boy, and after she confirmed his identity, she and the boy who claimed to be Nicholas flew back home to Texas. There were some notable physical differences between this new person and Nicholas, including different hair and eye colors, as well as a newfound French accent. But the Barclay family didn't seem to notice, or perhaps they were so relieved to have their son back that they didn't care. In late 1997, a local private investigator became suspicious after an interaction with the family. He compared photos of Nicholas with the European newcomer and found that they did not match. In February of 1998, the FBI issued a court order that required the suspected imposer to provide DNA samples and fingerprints. The samples identified the boy, not as Nicholas, and in fact not as a boy at all, but as a 23-year-old Frenchman named Frédéric Borden. In September of 1998, Borden pleaded guilty to passport fraud and perjury. He was sentenced to six years in prison, and meanwhile, Nicholas Barclay has never been found. His case remains unsolved. Walter Collins was not whisked away to another world by fairies. He was lost to a senseless act of violence, an evil that was all too human, and the choices that led to a stranger taking his place in the Collins' home were human too, born of human instincts, human flaws, the impulse to harm, to hurt, to kill, the urge to try to tie up a heartbreaking loose end without stopping to consider the red flags right in front of one's eyes. The desire to settle in a safe home, even under false pretenses. The choice to ignore the instincts of a terrified mother insisting that the boy in front of her was not her son. We don't need vengeful spirits of the forest to explain away the strangest things in the world. We don't need to look to fairy tales. We only need to look at the darkest things we, and our fellow human beings, are capable of. 
This week's episode was written by Addison Peacock. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was Danny Sweet, and I'm your showrunner, Pacific Ass Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska, and this is a Bloody FM show. For more information, visit bloody.fm.